Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And for today's episode, we're traveling to Iceland. To Iceland. Sunny, warm, paradise Iceland. Yeah. Wait, I might be thinking of somewhere else, like the Bahamas. Are you thinking of Cancun? (laughs) Cabo. I always get Cabo and Iceland mixed up. Yeah, it's real weird. But I mean, we're American, so it's easy for that to happen. I got to say, I was uh, real jealous. I got some travel jealousy last year, I believe, when Stuff to Blow Your Mind co-host Joe went over to Iceland for a trip. Yeah, me too. And also, I had uh, some friends on Facebook that I was so like, I feel like I'm out of a study, like the jealousy that you feel like I'm out of one of our sminty studies that we've cited about, like seeing friends pictures from Iceland. And and these these particular friends are like very well dressed, like well traveled people. And are so, they really hashtag blessed? Oh, my God. They are the epitome of hashtag blessed. And they were just all over this gorgeous landscape. And I just I so badly want to go to Iceland. So if anybody wants to let CNC couch surf. Yeah. Get us, get CNC to Iceland because we've mentioned Iceland so many times yeah. on the podcast because it's routinely cited as one of, if not the best countries in the world for women. And we're going to get into why that is and why as some women in Iceland have responded to us on Facebook very helpfully, why that glosses over a lot of details about what it's really like yeah. to be a woman in Iceland. Yeah, and and we will discuss some of those things that are glossed over, but I think it is worth noting. I mean, we are speaking from the perspective of two American women, and so even though there are a lot of buts when it comes to Icelandic gender equality, it still looks pretty darn good to us. Now, is that buts with one T or two? Um, if I'm speaking as my alter ego, Tina from Bob's Burgers, it's two. Okay. Okay. Um, but, but right now it's Caroline. It's, I think it's just, just a one T. Okay. Yeah. But that's, Tina's always under the surface. <laughs> that's good to clarify. Um, also, I feel like we should go ahead <laughs> and clarify how we are going to try our best to pronounce <laughs> some Icelandic names. That are so consonant happy. I literally, do you hear this? This is a piece of paper that has pronunciations written on it. And yeah, we're, we're going to do our best. Yeah. And listeners in Iceland, we are relying on you to gently <laughs> correct us on yeah. all of the mispronunciations. And I would like to, to also say that we didn't just pull these pronunciations out of nowhere. I researched on the internet. So this isn't just us being like, this is how you pronounce those letters that look different. You Googled it. I Googled. I used the Google. So with that, why don't we go back to a time, Caroline, long before the Google? Oh. <laughs> how about that for a segue into history? I think it's perfect. So before we get into what the title of the episode is all about in terms of the day that women in Iceland went on strike, we need to lay a little bit of a historical foundation because... Politics and feminism have been alive and well in Iceland for quite some time. Yeah, and very ingrained, very enmeshed. So, yeah, let's give you a brief rundown. In 1907, you get the Icelandic Women's Rights Association founded by a leading suffragist in the country. And this is Iceland's first formal women's organization. And it was focused specifically on gender equality and equal access to things like education, political appointments and jobs. And seven years later, in 1914, you get the first Women Workers Association founded. And in 1920, same year as suffrage happened here in the United States, uh, in Iceland, all women gained the right to vote and hold office. And leading up to this point, Voting rights had been granted incrementally, starting off with widows and single women. I thought that was interesting, too, because historically in our country, widows and single women have not been trusted. Yeah, they're despised. (laughs) In fact, perhaps in... (laughs) Burned at the stake at one point in our history. And then from there, 
I think it was married women over 40. Again. Could vote. Again. Well, married or single women over 40, not historically trusted in our country. Exactly. Um, but in 1920, everyone gets to vote and it's notable how quickly the first woman is then elected to parliament in 1922. Yeah, and in 1948, a male member of parliament presents this draft law on gender equality that ends up getting thrown out based on the assumption that the research had not been fully completed as to whether men and women were discriminated against at all. That reminds me so much of just YouTube comments, angry YouTube comments, (laughs) saying, like, feminism is a myth, there's no discrimination. If feminism is a myth, are we... Unicorns are like Greek goddesses. I'll take unicorn. Okay, can we Greek goddess unicorns? I just want pure unicorn. With feminist emblazoned across our flanks. Yes. Is it getting weird? Anyway, I'm really going to enjoy this. Yeah, because I think we just got branded. I'm really excited. I'm a branded feminist unicorn. In 1961, though, things look up after, you know, it hadn't really been proved whether women were discriminated against. And Parliament approves the Equal Pay Act with the goal of closing that gap by 1968, which was a it was a super good try. Super good. But the fact that they were unsuccessful would then directly lead to strikes, plural, later in yeah, the history. Because when the 70s roll around, Icelandic women are fed up mm-hmm. and they're starting to get radical. Mm-hmm. So in 1970, the first female cabinet minister is appointed. And also that year, the radical feminist group, the Red Stockings, is founded. And the Red Stockings serve as a key force in raising awareness around gender equality issues. Yeah. And so there's this growing power in Iceland that's really part of this larger movement around women's rights globally. And so the UN proclaims 1975 to be International Women's Year. And that almost directly sparked the strike of 1975 in Iceland when women took the day off, so to speak. Yeah, and a quick side note that I love how that bit of history went viral a few months ago on the Internet. Everyone, like, remembered that it happened, and uh, women were really fist-pumping across social media and such. (laughs) But the way this happened was that after... The U.N. proclaimed 1975 to be International Women's Year. Representatives from five of Iceland's biggest women's organizations get together. They form a committee and are trying to figure out, okay, how can we commemorate International Women's Day? What can we do to kind of highlight the gender disparities that still exist? So the radical red stockings are like, listen. <laughs> Let's just go on strike. Those rabble rousers, those rabble rouser, radical red stocking feminists. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and I also argued how a strike would be a really powerful way to highlight how valuable and undervalued women's roles in the country were. And so they also wanted to highlight things specifically like low pay and the low value that was placed not only on work, Outside the home, but inside as well. They did not and at any point want to limit this to just working women or just women at home. This was meant to be completely inclusive. Yeah, and call attention to the whole second shift. I mean, Icelandic women were and still are dealing with that as well. And the feminist committee agreed on one condition, though. They were like, OK, Red Stockings, we like this idea, but the word strike is going to freak out too many employers. And we don't want to risk women losing their jobs because they're technically going on strike. So they replace strike with day off. And this is not the first time that we're going to talk about how uh, how particular Icelandic feminists have been with language um, and, and how effective that's been. So with day off, employers were a lot more amenable to letting the ladies go for a day. Yeah. And so on October 24th, in the largest rally in Iceland's history up to that point, 90% of the country's women walked off the job. They refused to cook. They refused to work. And they refused to look after the kiddos. Yeah. I mean, and 
They talk about how men obviously were kind of freaking out, and there was apparently a run on sausages because <laughs> guys were like, "No, who's going to do the cooking? Let's just get the kids some sausages." I feel like it's when you know dad makes you the hot dogs. No, well, actually, it reminds me of in my house when my mom would go on a trip. My dad heated up kid cuisine meals, which were basically like lean cuisine for children. But it was always so disheartening because while they always provided a dessert. In the meals where the dessert was like pudding, it would come out hot and kind of congealed in the oven. And I'm so sorry you had to experience that, Caroline. <laughs> oh, hot pudding. I know. I should have gone on strike. You should have. You and that penguin on the cover of uh, Kid Cuisine Meals. Um, well, and they, they also noted how in addition to all the kids eating hot pudding and sausages... <laughs> So sad. Schools, uh, nurseries, any kind of female dominated workplace <laughs> kind of fell apart for the day or just had to run on a half day schedule. And even women who worked at the newspaper walked off, didn't, uh, you know, didn't show up until midnight. They all came back and resumed working. But apparently the newspaper the next day was half its usual size. And all the coverage was about the strike. Yeah, there was nothing else. And lady bank tellers, too, whose positions had to be filled by male superiors in their absence, were totally stoked to be able to, like, pop into the bank and keep them busy. I which love I love. That. I love it. It's like this gentle teasing of, like, oh, hey, boss. Like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm, on, I'm on a day off, so I'm coming in to do my banking. And the impact was felt so significantly that the day became nicknamed the Long Friday. <laughs> And I just picture, uh, I know you've seen them, Kristen, and I'm sure some of our listeners have too, but those postcards and um, like propaganda imagery that came out in this country, but also abroad, around the time that women were trying to earn suffrage rights, all of these postcards and propaganda about like these exhausted men, like being left behind in the home and with a crying baby, with a crying baby. And they've got like a halo around their head because clearly they're like wholly in their oppression by women having the right to vote. Uh, but I, it's kind of like that's what I picture. I picture these Icelandic dads just like baby in one hand, towel over the shoulder, like ready to eat sausage, pret-a-manger sausage in the other hand. Um, but I mean, think about it like this was in Reykjavik alone, 25,000 women from all walks of life gathered to listen to speeches, to sing, to discuss issues. And 25,000, that's significant in and of itself, but it's especially uh, significant when you consider that this was out of a total national population at the time of about 220,000. I also really enjoyed reading about how uh, women dressed for the event. Some of them were like, uh, you know, I'm just going to come as myself. I'll wear my regular work duds. No big deal. And some ladies are dressed up for it. Oh, they were like, yeah. listen, it's our big day. <laughs> Better put on a nice pantsuit. Women's day off more like women's big day out. Oh, yeah, it's true. Mm. Well, and the question then is, why was it so successful? They didn't even have Twitter, you know, to <laughs> let everybody know what was going on. There was no hashtag activism going on. There wasn't. Yeah, this is like you said at the top of the podcast, this is before Google. And so a lot of the success was attributed to, number one, activists successfully persuading labor unions and the Federation of Employees not to punish women for walking out. It's a huge deal. But secondly... Women from all political parties and unions really felt tied together and able to work together to make this happen. Again, the red stockings, while they were considered, quote unquote, radical, they were part of this larger umbrella coalition of feminist women who wanted to make this happen. And so they did. And the political and social effects of it would set up an ever more empowered women's movement. And the thing that kept resonating with me, Caroline, reading about the feminist movement, particularly in Iceland, is how politically focused they were, not in the sense of second wave feminism in the United States, focusing on legislation such as, um, you know, passing reproductive rights bills and things like that, but political in the sense of actually getting women in office, which we'll get to in just a second. But immediately, the immediate effect was really just a wake-up call. I mean, it engendered solidarity 
among the country's women. Yeah, and this also paved the way for the 1980 election of Vigdis Finnbogdatir. How'd I do, guys? Okay, uh, she was the world's first democratically elected female president who served until 1996. And I love this quote. She says, after October 24th, women thought it was time a woman became president. The finger was pointed at me and I accepted the challenge. And shortly thereafter, women's political participation really shot up. Women went from 6 to 13% of council members, and that number would actually hit 40% in 2009, and from 5 to 15% of members of parliament, and that would go on to hit 35% in the 90s and 43% in 2009. Uh, and shortly after, we also get the first superior court judge and the first woman speaker in parliament. And on top of that, you have activists establishing the Center for Gender Equality, which was a powerful government agency that can fine companies and governmental departments and agencies for refusing to reveal gender equality data or for failing to file their required gender action plan. So you start to have some accountability being built straight into the government. And in 1981, they launched the Women's Alliance with the goal of fostering gender equality and more consensus in politics. And as a result of that, they successfully scored positions in municipal elections right out of the gate. Yeah. And then we get the Gender Equality Act uh, shortly thereafter, which prohibited gender discrimination. I mean, so right away, it's like, so I just love how rapidly all of this happens. It's like they go on strike and within the next five, six, seven years, they've made such incredible strides. Well, if we then hop forward to 2005, on the anniversary of the 1975 strike, women took another day off called Women's Strike Back. And it was because, though, of a lingering feeling of disillusionment. There was all this progress. Like you said, all these things happening, almost like dominoes falling so quickly. But in 2005, they look around and they're saying, we're still earning just 64% of what men are earning on average. And so for Women's Strike Back in 20, oh, 2005, 20, that's what you call it, 20 right? 2005. 20, <laughs> in 2005, women were encouraged to leave work at 2.08 p.m., which marked how long men would need to work to earn pay equal to a woman. Yeah. They left and they were like, what? No, I'm leaving. This is the point at which I would have earned all of my wages for the day if I were paid equal to a man. Boom. Drop the mic. Walk out. And walk out they did. 50,000 women participated in Reykjavik alone, and there were 60,000 nationally altogether, plus supporters, of course, all equating to a sixth of the country's population with less than two months of organizing. So, again, what is going on? Of course, at this point, do we have Twitter? No, still we don't. It's 2005. Still no hashtag <laughs> activism, people. Um, I know that I sound ridiculous saying that. It's it's unjust. Um, so, again, how were they so successful so fast? Well, the events project leader credited the coordination to the large variety of organizations across the country and how interconnected they all were. Uh, She even called it a mafia because essentially all the women involved knew each other. Ladies helping ladies. I mean, essentially, is the answer to gender equality like a a good phone tree? (laughs) Brenda will bring the brownies. (laughs) I love it. I love a feminist phone tree. We need to start that. But then in 2010, women in Iceland went on strike yet again. But the country's landscape was a little different. And we're going to talk about that and the situation today in terms of whether Iceland is the feminist paradise that we so often hear about when we come right back from a quick break. Caroline, I'm so happy to report that my personal website, kristenconger.com, has gotten a complete makeover thanks to Squarespace. And you know what? I don't know coding. Didn't need to because Squarespace has all sorts of gorgeous design templates and it's so simple to use. You don't have to know any fancy HTML what's not. So you just go on there, build your site. Bada bing boom, launch it. kristenconger.com looks amazing. Yeah, I hate that KristenConger.com is already taken. There are, Kristen's not kidding, there are some amazingly beautiful templates. My problem is that I literally can't decide between them. I know, it's hard, but 
Squarespace also offers you, you know, examples of live sites using the various design templates. That's right. And right now we've got a special offer for our fabulous mom stuff listeners. Head over to squarespace.com today and use the code MOMSTUFF to get 10% off your order and a free domain name. Again, head over to squarespace.com and use code MOMSTUFF for 10% off your order and a free domain today. And now back to the show. The gender, political, and financial dynamics of what was going on in Iceland leading up to the 2010 strike are really fascinating and kind of mind-boggling, not because it was so different from what happened in the financial collapse in the United States, but because of how different the response to the collapse was. So if you look back at 2005 Icelanders, they had a lot more money in their pockets than did the Icelanders in 2010 post-collapse. So there had been lots of spending on luxury goods, uh, buying mortgages in foreign currency, and there was a boom in Iceland's currency itself. So basically, if we're giving you the brief kind of glossed over rundown because the story gets a little complicated with all of the wheeling and dealing financial bros, um... You've got the privatized and overwhelmingly male-dominated banking industry that's just booming. So tiny Iceland, all alone, was home to three of the world's biggest banks. And so a basic rundown from a paper in the journal Gender, Sexuality, and Feminism from 2014 pointed out, male ministers privatized the banks, sold them to other men, who put yet another man in charge, praising the masculine values of aggressiveness, competition, and risk-taking. Basically, you've got lots of machismo, lots of guys reveling in their being descendants of Vikings, and they basically were saying, we are the only ones, us macho Viking men, who have what it takes to take the giant financial risks. And based on their giant financial risk taking, they also raked in equally giant paychecks. And by the way, Caroline, I at first thought that the Viking reference in one of our sources was a joke, but then it came up again in this paper. And and listeners in Iceland, please confirm or deny this, because apparently these bankers and finance men were publicly touting this kind of Viking heritage, saying like, yes, yes, it's our, it's the Viking in our blood. I'm sure if the uh, men in the financial sector in America felt more of a connection to the Vikings, they would, too, have claimed such heritage. Well, and with those initial giant paychecks rolling in, that actually sent more women back home. Um, they were taking on nearly all the domestic duties as their husbands were working long hours and making lots of money. And women hadn't previously had to justify working outside the home. It was just kind of a given that they would do that. But suddenly, many of them were kind of playing second fiddle to their extremely wealthy, risk-taking Viking husbands. I mean, <laughs> why go to work and put your kid in daycare if... Your husband is bringing home enough money for the both of you. If he's buying luxury goods and what's nuts. Yeah. And of course, we should again specify that we are incredibly condensing a lot of information to basically give you a little backdrop of what's going on. Because in spring 2009, the government collapses. The wage gap had shrunk somewhat. But it was more because so many highly paid men lost their jobs or had their wages cut during the collapse rather than like, oh, in the midst of all of this Viking chaos, let's make women completely equal to men. And here is where, to me, it gets really interesting because uh, not being a banker, but being an American and watching the recession happen in our country, uh, it seem like a lot of people tried to clean it up, but it still seems to be business as usual. However, in Iceland, people actively started calling for a return to feminine values. When in the world have you ever heard that? They wanted, actively wanted aspects like balance, risk awareness, and profit with principles in order to counter that whole Viking masculinity complex. And what's so interesting, the reason that this was top of mind is because 
during all of the privatization frenzy of the 90s and 2000s that created this unstable industry, it was the Women's Alliance that had been the one calling for maintaining a national bank the whole time. Like, hey, guys, like, let's not let's not do all of this that you're doing. Like, can we can we like maintain one national bank? So in the wake of this collapse, there was a sharp turn to the left after 18 years of right wing power. They elected beloved prime minister Johanna Sigurdottir. She was the country's first female prime minister and the world's first openly gay top leader. And hers was the first government to actually have a gender balance at cabinet level. Yeah, I mean, and and quickly going back to the promotion of the quote unquote feminine values in the wake of the economic fallout, which, by the way, Caroline, you asked, like, when was the last time you've ever heard that promoted? I think I've really only heard that promoted, like, on, like, body wash and shampoo commercials. Um, but I remember in the United States, obviously, because that's where I am, but there were a number of sort of trend and think pieces sure, yeah. on the role of gender in the Wall Street meltdown in the United States. But so much of it seems so theoretical. I mean, we even talked about it on the podcast, you know, the whole risk taking issue and how all of that, all of those Viking, (laughs) that Viking masculinity complex um, led to the, the banking collapse. But it really just stopped there. Right. Exactly. And that's what I think is so fascinating that, yes, you did have those think pieces. Absolutely. And you had academics and you had all sorts of people saying like, We need to get away from this whole risk taking endeavor, this whole like, you know, big shot, big risk, big paycheck thing and approach things more cautiously, maybe with more quote unquote feminine mindsets. But it certainly wasn't at a national level, really, in terms of especially the the quote unquote feminine part. And usually in this country, when you hear a return to feminine values, it's typically things specifically focusing on motherhood or childbirth or being in the home. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I just think it's fascinating that on a national level, people were calling for that in the banking industry. Yeah. I mean, and this, this leads us up to that 2010 strike and it might seem strange that that would happen again because we just talked about how, you know, there was this major political shift after 18 years of a right-wing rule. You have a feminist coming into office. Um, but despite all of these kinds of changes, there still wasn't enough being done to close that pay gap, which still stood at 65%. And also, this was when you really start seeing feminists uh, campaigning for what they called freedom from male violence. Yeah, activists, for instance, stretched a red scarf from the high court all the way down to the low court to draw attention to that gap between the 270 rapes that were reported to activists in 2009 and only seven convictions. So here, you know, we start to see the first glimmer of like Iceland is not perfect. No, no place is perfect, obviously. And just like in 2005 or 2005, as I apparently call it, the women walked out of their jobs at 225 p.m., marking the end of their day when if they were dudes, they would have earned the same amount of money. And again, its success was attributed to the relationships built between all of these organizations. You have around 20 Icelandic women's groups that formed an umbrella coalition. And you also have the participation of different types of women. You have native women and immigrant women, self-identified feminists and people who are not so keen on calling themselves feminists. All of these women were showing up. I mean, uh, they talked to what was it? I think it was an article in The Nation was covering this strike. And the reporter talked to a woman who wouldn't call herself a feminist, uh, but she said that she came anyway to, quote, show that we women stand together and that this is ridiculous, this difference in wages. Yeah. And amazingly, they had a lot of support from those in power. The Reykjavik mayor, for instance, sent a letter to city employees encouraging women to participate. Former President Vigdis came, as did Johanna, who published a letter in the paper asking women to join. And I love this. It's like a party. It's absolutely a party. She bought all of her ministers pink and blue lensed gender glasses. I wonder if those would work at a 3D movie, too. (laughs) 
Like, <laughs> is that all they were? Yeah. Well, I mean, you put them on and suddenly there's more women in the movie and they're all being paid the same as the male actors. Oh, so suddenly like all films pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. Suddenly everything becomes Jessica Jones. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, speaking of Jessica Jones, which is media, how about that transition? <laughs> there was so much media attention on it. Uh, television news focused on it all weekend and the radio even played early women's liberation music which i'm just imagining is a lot of joan Baez. i was gonna say the same thing and icelanders please tell us if you have your own version of joan Baez. i'm sure you do we we don't want to project our american folk singers onto you well and at this point too in 2010 the director of the icelandic women's history archive said uh, now it's a thing that Icelandic women do, referring to the going on strike. Yeah, you just put on those gender glasses. Yep. And get your, your red scarf to protest sexual assault. Pump up the Joan Baez. Get, get your Icelandic Joan Baez in your, in your earbuds and, and walk out at yeah. approximately 2.20 or 2.30 in the afternoon, <laughs> depending on what the wage gap is that day. I mean, and, and all these things are, yes, delightful to read about, and it seems so otherworldly to us sitting here in this podcast studio in the United States, particularly as we're recording this in the midst of uh, a heated political season where yeah. things like uh, the phrase the gender card gets thrown around a lot. Um, so it's easy from just this perspective to say, of course, Iceland is a feminist paradise. And then we have all these statistics like every year. There are always the reports of like, of course, this is the best place in the world for women. How could it not be? It's like if Obama was handing out gender glasses to everybody, <laughs> you know, I mean, people would be mad about it. You know, they'd be like, thanks, Obama. And then like throw the glasses in the trash, probably. But <laughs> there are, you know, some there there's some decent statistics to back up, you know, why we might all want to pack up and move to Iceland. Sure. I know. I've already told I've already told my boyfriend that's where we're going. He's he's down. He's like, sure. I'm like, well, get your passport renewed. We'll go for a visit and we'll see how we like it. I like volcanoes. I love them, too. And they have a penis museum. Do they really? Yes, they do. Um, and also, Caroline, that was me just inviting myself on um, an international trip with you and your boyfriend. So. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I assume. Okay, and good. your professor fiance is invited as well. Yeah, he'll just <laughs> stay home. <laughs> Let's take care of the dog. Yeah. Well, you know what? Maybe we can even drop my boyfriend off in Scotland where he has some friends and you and I will just keep going. No, I really prefer to third wheel it, <laughs> you know, make things make dinners as awkward as possible. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, that sounds almost as amazing. As the fact that Iceland for the past couple of years has topped the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Index. And this report evaluates gender equality based on the gender balance that's in politics, education, employment and health. In fact, the people, the good people at the World Economic Forum recently predicted that Iceland will be the first to close that gap. But the thing is, we got to keep in mind that the GGG index, not to be confused with Dan Savage's GGG, <laughs> measures gaps rather than true equality between the sexes or empowerment. Right. So there's nuance underneath that number. Right. But also, you know, on, on the bright side, we have to look at political participation. And this was something that we mentioned earlier, where from the get go, the feminist movement in Iceland has been so focused on getting women in office, which is something that in the United States we still struggle with so much. So in Iceland, though, there have been female heads of state for 20 of the past 50 years, along with robust representation in politics. And that's tied to the left's enthusiastically embraced quota systems, which are not all mandated. It's like a voluntary quota system. Yeah. Again, this is another thing that I, I feel like uh, would have a hard time flying in our country. Um, so the women's movement in general, but specifically the political left, has fought for the inclusion of these quota systems in selecting political candidates. And again, like Kristen said, they're not law. The implementation is up to those individual parties. And so it is worth noting that if and when those political leanings shift, when if if and when they go back to right wing rule, it's very possible that those quota systems might fall by the wayside. Well, then shifting away from politics, if we look at labor force participation, Icelandic women have been working outside the home for 
quite some time. And for a long time, they have had and still do the highest female workforce participation rate in the world at 88%. But, and, and this jumped out to me as like, well, why is that necessarily a bad thing? Um, they still manage to have two kids on average, which is actually the highest fertility rate in Europe. Yeah. Um, which some people see as a strain on the whole system. Like, well, women are still having these kids. Are they still obligated to motherhood too much? But the thing is, it's, I don't want to say easier, but it's more feasible to be a mom or a parent in Iceland, especially if you have listened to our podcast on maternity leave in the United States. Yikes. Yeah. So the whole reason why it's such an important distinction to make that you've got so much, such high labor force participation and also such high fertility rates, it's all the secret is all in the child care. So in Iceland, high-quality, affordable daycares and nurseries are heavily subsidized by the government, meaning that your average Reykjavik couple would pay the equivalent of about 185 U.S. dollars a month for eight hours a day of childcare, food included, and single parents would pay about $108. And you're like, okay, money, that's fine. In the U.S., your average couple and... Average meaning there, some people pay a lot more and some people pay less, but your average couple in the U.S. will pay about $972 a month. Yes. I mean, you have so many dual earner families, specifically dual earnings, so that one of those incomes can pay for daycare alone. Yeah. Whew, don't get me started on daycare. <laughs> also because I used to be a daycare worker back in high school. So I got lots of stories. Um, but... Speaking of maternity leave and parental leave, each parent in Iceland is entitled to three months of parental leave. With an additional three months, the parents can decide how to divide between themselves. And it's they also offer the world's longest paternal leave, although they can't pass that along to the mom. But that incentivizes dudes taking the time off to take care of the kids. And in fact, in 2009, 85% of new fathers took paternity leave. And again, though, we get to the issues of quotas helping workforce participation. Um, there is a lot of concern over women's representation in the workforce in general, maintaining those numbers and even improving them, but also specifically in executive management spots. So the boards of publicly owned companies and joint stock companies with 50 or more employees were legally required by September of 2013 to have at least 40 percent women or men. It's just as long as that that 40 percent, almost half and half numbers maintained on their boards. And side note, men at the moment are 90% of CEOs at those 50 plus employee companies. And when you look at companies with 25 or more employees, they also have to report the gender balance in general employment and management. And Sadia Zahidi, who's the head of the World Economic Forum's gender equality campaign, really highlighted a lot of the efforts around recruiting and maintaining women's numbers in the workforce, but also making sure that policies are in place to support both men and women, really families in general, making sure that people feel free to be in the workforce and have families at the same time if they want them. And a term jumped out to me, Caroline, in researching for this episode that I had never heard of before called gender budgeting. And this is part of the coalition platform of the Social Democratic Alliance and the left green movement, which requires the assessment of all government budgets and programs for their likely impact on women and gender equality, which, again, building in those layers of accountability from the top down. Um, and all of these government subsidies, too, that have afforded Child care and parental leave also stretches to higher education as well. Um, the University of Iceland ratio is two to one women to men graduating. And a majority of schools at every level are state run, which means that there are no school fees. So most university students do have access to loans to cover the cost of living. But there's not that huge student loan debt burden that is rapidly growing in the United States. I'm still, I think, just like building up an argument in my mind to move to Iceland. Yeah, I know it's not perfect, but still, <laughs> I mean, y'all, y'all got a lot of good things going on. 
Yeah, exactly. And in terms of gender division in educational attainment, women are the majority of master's grads, but the Ph.D. numbers are more equal. But uh, there's always a but. Um, there are clear gender preferences in terms of studies, and this isn't necessarily bad. It's just interesting to note. Many women in Iceland do choose subjects that lead them to jobs in the care sector, whereas men are more likely to choose subjects leading them to lucrative STEM jobs. So, no, it's not bad. Your choice of profession is whatever you want it to be. But the STEM jobs are paying more than some of the public sector or service-oriented positions. Which, of course influences the gender wage gap. Mm -hmm. Um, You also have women-friendly laws that have been passed. I mean, if we look to the 1990s and in 95, the Constitution was updated to include uh, men and women's equal rights being explicitly stated. Fast forward to 2009. um, This has actually been really interesting to me in terms of uh, their approach to sex work. So in 2009, they passed a law criminalizing the purchase of sex while still protecting sex workers from being prosecuted. Strip clubs have also been shut down and lap dancing eliminated. No dancing on laps. Yeah. No dancing on laps. Caroline. I, I, listen, I'm sorry. It was an awkward day. Uh, in 2010, same-sex marriage was legalized, and single women and same-sex couples alike were allowed access to donor eggs and sperm, finally. And in 2011, there was a law authorizing the removal of a perpetrator from a home when domestic violence is suspected. And so in 2008, for instance, a study found that 22% of women in Iceland said that they had experienced intimate partner violence, and that rate increased during the financial downturn. So all of these amazing achievements are being made. And we've talked a lot about how, you know, it makes sense because of the strong ties um, and coalitions between women's and feminist organizations. But there's also this thing called the triangle of empowerment that one of the scholars we were reading noted. Like that's kind of the secret sauce of mm. how this all has come together so the three points of the triangle of empowerment, which I feel like there needs to be a badge, yeah. made a triangle of empowerment badge. <laughs> you have strong activism, a critical contingent of feminist politicians. Again, political office makes a big difference. And feminist officials with legal authority to address inequality. So there you have a platform. Yeah. You know, you've got like the consciousness raising, political engagement. Mm-hmm. And the platform. Women, yeah, the women making it happen. And I mean, this is what you just talked about, Kristen, having the ability to affect change from the top down. You need that grassroots support. You need the political will. And then you need the people who can actually put it into action. And I'm just envisioning it like the tri- triangle of empowerment is also like the food pyramid. <laughs> so at the top, you have like the, you know, the female presidents and prime ministers are like the desserts. <laughs> But we want more of them. Well, in Iceland, like you only need like one of each. Right. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, But also, you know, Kristen hinted at this topic earlier, um, which is the nuanced language choices of the women's movement in Iceland. And really, a lot of the articles that we read credited the women's movement's widespread support and success to word choice. So activists made the tactical choice to use the language of gender equality rather than necessarily latching onto the word feminism. And they point out that while, yeah, this might be less radical, it's also less divisive. And I know that concept might not sit well with a lot of our listeners, but the whole thing that we're reading about is that a lot of Icelanders, male and female alike, have been able to embrace this ideal and idea of gender equality. And so to a lot of activists in the women's movement and outside of it, the word feminism, using the word feminism is not as important as coming together across all sorts of political and social lines to inspire change. So as a result, you have one of the most active and politically integrated women's movements 
in the world. I mean, we went back to 1907. I mean, and it stretches even before that in Iceland, where you have feminism and gender equality being ingrained in the politics, um, so much so that female members of parliament performed the vagina monologues a couple of years ago. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, I cannot. <laughs> no, I cannot. I feel like Elizabeth Warren might do it. Elizabeth Warren could do it. I don't know. She'd, she'd find a way to work Wall Street into, uh, into her vagina monologues. And that Nation article that Kristen mentioned a little bit ago said that a lot of this is, quote, in striking contrast to the movement in countries like the United States, where it has been professionalized into social service agencies and the academy. And writing for the nation, Janet Elise Johnson, was wondering whether this broad-based institution building, rather than what she calls the intergenerational infighting that seems to characterize the American feminist movement, is more likely to be successful in reducing gender inequality here in the United States. So she's wondering if we can take this model, this coalition building that we're seeing in Iceland and apply it to our own feminist movement in this country. Yeah, I mean, I the thing that comes to mind... In comparing the two, I mean, A, you have size. You know, mm-hmm. Iceland is 330,000 people. And also you don't have a history of slavery. You know, I mean, like, because that is really, I mean, there's the intergenerational disagreements among, yes, like white middle class feminists. But to me, like the more deeply embedded problems that have prevented a lot of coalition building have a lot more to do with the marginalization of women of color and class-based divisions. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I think that I think it would be hard to say. I think that's too simplistic of, of a solution. And also, I feel like in general, the U.S. is so far behind in terms of getting more women into those positions of power, women who are willing and able. That's the key. Able to make those sweeping political changes. Yeah. And even at the local level, I mean, the women friendly national shift that we saw in Iceland was also reflected in local governments, which is super important as well. Um, As of May 2010, for instance, an unprecedented 39.8 percent of those elected in municipal elections were women. So this leads us to the final question of, Will Iceland's women strike again? Oh, I'm sure they will. It's it's a thing Iceland's women do, don't you know? And I want to know, though, if Iceland's women do strike, like, would we be allowed to join the strike? Could oh, my we go God. Over? Could we come? <gasps> but I don't know. I mean, I feel like we might be kind of invading their, no. their thing. Kristen, their whole thing is coalition building. Oh. They want all different types of women from all different um, countries. Sm- smile. This is us asking any Icelandic listeners. This is us inviting ourselves. To- My passport is ready to go. Well, I mean, do you think, though, that they will strike, though, anytime soon? Because the wage gap is narrowed. Women are now making about 80 percent of what men are making. But you do still have issues with women being the majority of single parents. And they're struggling financially. Um, you still have more low wage women than men. And you're seeing a shift of younger people holding more conservative views, which is leading more women to stay at home. Yeah. Or a lot of them, a lot of like teens and early 20s boys think that women should stay at home. They believe in gender equality. They believe in the ideal of equality between men and women. But more and more of them are thinking, yeah, and but also you should stay at home. Very interesting paradox there. I would not put it past Iceland's women from all classes and all parts of society to band together and strike again. I mean, definitely 2025. Whenever you got like an anniversary yeah. of the first. Well, no, what are we in? Oh, for yeah. for a minute, they were doing it every five years. And for a minute, I mean, like just the once they had 2005 to, to 2010. So that there should have been one last year that we could have gone to. Oh, but 2020 could totally happen. Yeah. Okay, so we're apparently planning the next Icelandic (laughs) women's strike. Everyone, watch out. We'll get our red stockings on. But this was so fun to dive into 
this history and especially put some context to, you know, those stats that we do talk about in social media promote all the time, mm-hmm. you know, whenever Iceland is, you know, hailed as the feminist utopia. So I at least feel more informed on that. But I think we can get even more informed from our listeners. Mm-hmm. We want to hear from you on this. And also, regardless of where you live, have you ever gone on strike for anything? And would you ever join a women's strike? Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. So I have a letter here from Alex in response to our trucking episode. Alex says, hello, I just listened to your Women in Trucking podcast, and while I thought it was a great and fascinating episode, it shocked me that you don't think there's a union supporting them. As far as I know, the Teamsters Union is and always has been the largest and strongest union in the USA. There are also truckers and other unions like the Roofers and Waterproofers Union because they need to get their equipment places, too. Also, when talking about places to go for food, there are truck stop diners which have large meals available and parking. But when driving in the city and trying to eat, truckers will often just throw their hazard lights on in the turn lane and run into a fast food restaurant because, as you might imagine, there isn't parking and they don't fit in the drive through <laughs> Hazard of the job. Alex says, in other news, while I have long ago given up on acne treatment, I love hearing an advertisement for it because I am so bored of listening to the same advertisements every day on all my podcasts. And finally, there is one that relates to the show. (laughs) So thank you for your very kind corrections and your love for uh, Curology.com. Well, Caroline, speaking of our trucking episode, I have a letter here. From Trucker Greg, who helped inspire that episode. And I think that he's like an honorary, you know, Sminty Hall of Famer at this point. Um, so Greg, we heard back from you after our trucking episode, which was so exciting to hear back from you. He wrote, just wanted to thank you for the fantastic podcast on women in trucking. I had to chuckle when Atlanta traffic was mentioned. I know all too well how crazy it can be. And thank you for giving us room. We notice and appreciate it, although we may not acknowledge it. A couple of points I would like to add for anyone looking at a career in trucking. First, any reputable company that hires new drivers will pair a student driver with a trainer of the same sex just to avoid the problems you discussed. The concern of sexual assault by a trainer against a student is absolutely a valid concern and nobody deserves to be subjected to that. Second, be prepared to give it everything you've got for at least a year. The first year is very difficult without question. The pay isn't good, and learning the ropes largely on your own can be stressful. But once you get past that first year, things do get better and much easier. At that point, you may find this career is very fulfilling. I love it and can't picture myself doing anything else. And as far as hours of service go, I thought I'd clarify a bit what was mentioned. Our days can be up to 14 hours long, but we can only spend 11 of those hours behind the wheel at most. Generally speaking, I try to drive around 10 hours a day. The rest of the time would be on duty time, which is work-related activities that don't involve driving, such as napping in the truck, fueling, loading, and unloading. Even though the work is related, typically you aren't paid for this time. In any case, I really appreciate what you do. Keep up the good work, and I'll continue listening. Well, thank you so much, Greg. We really appreciate hearing back from you, and stay safe out there on the road. And again, listeners, if you've got letters to send us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about Icelandic women, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 